Welcome to the Cornerstone Corner, our weekly message podcast. At Cornerstone, we are enthusiastic about all ages, having an authentic relationship with Jesus, others, and our community. Join us as we open the Bible and hear God's word for us today. All right, good morning. I know it's me again. I move a lot, so just follow along, I promise. We'll be okay. I'll try to stay. I'll try to stay here. Uh, but I'm Zach, um, and I am the student and worship director here uh, at Cornerstone, and I am so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. Um, I want to talk about something as we get into our teaching today that some of you might remember. Uh, I was in middle school when this came about, so just when you're thinking about how long ago that was, it wasn't. Remember that. So who remembers this? Anybody? Yeah? We all remember this? <laughs> Who remembers how mad people got when you could not see what they saw, right? And everybody knows it's white and gold, right? We're all on the same page there. It's white and gold. It's white and gold. If you say anything else, you're wrong. It's white and gold, right? But this was like a huge, huge, huge controversy. Like everybody was talking about it. Nobody could agree. It was an argument almost every single time. But it was crazy because no one actually took the time to do anything more than look at this picture. Like, you could have just researched and saw the actual color of the dress, but that's, that's too much work. So we'll just look at this, and we'll argue about it, because that's more fun. But you'll see why I bring this up in a little bit. Um, but if you don't know, here at Cornerstone, we are in a series that we are calling FAQs, um, which is the Frequently Asked Questions About Faith. And in this series, we've explored some of those questions and uh, what we feel are the answers to them. And it's been really great so far, um, but I'm particularly excited about today's message. Um, and if you were here last time I taught, you heard me say that I'm a little bit of a Bible history context nerd. Um, and so today's message actually plays really well into that. Um, and some people, I think, find these conversations difficult or hard to navigate. Um, and that's okay. Like, Bible history and context is not for everyone, and that's, that's understandable. But for the people that are with me on that, uh, we're going to talk today about this because I think it's life-giving and inspiring. What's up with the Bible and its contradictions? You guys ready for that? Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so as I'm teaching today, it's going to be a little different than how we normally do things um, here. And so today, this message is going to be broken into three sections, and those three sections are this what the Bible says about the Bible, number two, the most accused stories in the Bible, and number three, the Bible and me. And me means you and me, but it was catchier that way, so the Bible and me. <laughs> um, so if you are going to read along with our first verse, we are in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, um, and so we'll get there in a second. If you want to follow along on your smart device as well, you can go to sermons dot church and search Cornerstone Church and follow along that way. But first, let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you um, for the time that we get to be here together. Um, God, we pray uh, for the Poorman family as they travel back home. We pray for safe travels in that. Um, and God, we thank you that um, you know, you're here anyways. And even though spring break, you don't take weeks off. Joking. But God, we thank you for that. Uh, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So let's start with this first 
section. Um, and let's read this text on what the Bible says about itself here. So in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we see here a few things, uh, and this is our first point this morning. The Bible is God-breathed. Verse 16 says it. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so what, what does that mean? Because that's kind of a weird statement to say God-breathed. Um, other translations um, will, will say God-inspired. Uh, and this book is so many things, but summarized, it's a collection of faith accounts that were written by authors who were inspired by their faith and relationship with God, and were written to be used by people as a way to learn who God is, to point to the reason for Jesus, and to give us the necessary tools to defend it and live out our relationship with him. This is actually what our cornerstone statement of faith says that we believe about the Bible, and so it's going to come up on the screen we believe the original manuscripts, and this is important later as we get into this, so remember the original manuscripts of the Bible to be inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors. We consider the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are final, absolute, and the only infallible, infallible means without error, guide for faith and practice. And so we believe that the Bible is God-breathed. Our second point, we believe the Bible equips us. And what better equipped person is there than Iron Man? Right? <laughs> in, in verse 17 of that Timothy verse we read, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we can trust that with the Bible, we have everything that we need to be a servant and to be a follower of the Lord. And so our second point was the Bible equips us. Our third point, the Bible is true. If God inspired it, then we can trust that it's true. In verse 14, it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And then again, in Proverbs 30, it says this, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. And so we know the Bible is true. And so knowing this, I would say that if we trust God, but not the Bible, then I would argue that we don't trust God. And I would add to that, that if we believe that the Bible isn't true in some parts, then how can we be fully sure that it's true in any part? Right? And so that's actually going to lead us into our second section of our teaching. And don't worry, this one's a lot longer. So, you know, strap in for the ride. It's going to be fun. Um, but we're actually going to talk about uh, some of those things that might prevent you from believing that the Bible is holy and completely true. Talking about contradictions. And specifically the ones that come up when I searched, it might be a little different for, me, for, for you, but when I searched contradictions in the Bible, 
And so my goal in this section, it's up on the screen, uh, and you can write this in, reasonable solutions to the Bible's contradictions. My goal today is that we get to the reasonable solutions to the most accused stories in the Bible, right? And so there's actually six of them that we're going to look through. Um, and again, these are just ones that I looked up and that came up on the internet. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to present them from the accuser's side, and we're going to go through all six of them, and I'm going to present them as if I am saying there are contradictions, and then we'll go through one by one, and we'll see if we can find any of them to be irreconcilable. Sound good? Yeah. All right, cool. So here's the six. The first is this, numerical discrepancies. So there's actually 18 of them specifically in the Bible, um, but we're going to focus on one that I feel encompasses all of them, or at least most of them. Um, and so that's David's forces. In 2 Samuel, it says that David's forces killed 700 charioteers, but when recounting the same story in 1 Chronicles, it says that he killed 7,000 charioteers. So which one is it? The second one, how many angels were at the tomb of Jesus? In Matthew, it speaks of only one angel, but in John, it mentions two. So how many angels were at the tomb? Our third one, who carried the cross? Was it Simon, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us? Or was it Jesus, like John tells us? Number four, what was written above the cross? Was it, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, the King of the Jews, this is the King of the Jews, or Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews? Number five, where were the women at the crucifixion? Were they watching from afar, or were they up by the cross? And finally, number six, who went to the tomb? Was it Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? So two, was it both of them in Salome? Three, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women, so at least five? Or was it Mary Magdalene alone, one? And so again, the goal of this is we're going to go through one by one and try to come up with a reasonable solution to these contradictions. Now, in some of this, I can't be like a thousand percent sure this is exactly what happened because, you know, I'm 24, not 2000 and something. So I can't tell you exactly what happened, but I can contextualize and analyze and figure these things out in a way where I can come up with what I feel is a reasonable solution. And so, we're going to start with number one, this idea of numerical discrepancies. And so, um, how we're going to do this is we're going to read through the verses that um, the arguments make points on, and then we'll discuss from there. So let's start with the second Samuel verse in 1018. It says this, But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers. And so it says 700. But in 1 Chronicles, it says this, but they fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 of their charioteers. And so again, remember that point a little bit ago when I talked about our statement of faith? What were the words I used? Who remembers? Original manuscripts, right. And so um, we believe those to be infallible, but guess what? We ain't got those, right? We don't have access to the original manuscripts. And so, historical scholars would actually concede that the amount of translation and human margin for error would be in play considering how many times the Bible has been translated and copied throughout the years. 
And some scholars have even implied with non-biblical biblical examples that the ancient Greek language specifically um, isn't exactly super big on grammatical correctness when the goal was quick reproduction, right? And I can't speak to like, again, the 100% accurate nature of whether or not that's true. that's true. I'm not a historical scholar. But again, that's kind of my point in all of this. When you're relaying information over and over and over, sometimes things can get changed. And so all it took, my reasonable solution today is that all it took was one scribe to make a change, to make a human error. And with thousands and thousands reading it, and as it got passed down and passed along, and they're just copying word for word what's on there, all it took was one change. And I would argue that that's not necessarily a contradiction. I would think about it this way. It's not like it says David's forces killed like 444 or something, and then the other one is 7,000. Like, I feel like it's very reasonable that we could see how 700 and 7,000 could be mixed up, right? So that's my solution and how I feel that that was done. We're going to move on to number two. How many angels were at the tomb? So again, one at a time, we're going to read through these verses. Let's read through Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, "'Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified.'" He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And so there we see one angel, but in John we see a second one. So Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. As she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So what's my reasonable solution there? Because it seems like it's pretty clear. There's one, and then there's two. My reasonable solution is that there were two angels. But Matthew is just less descriptive when he talks about it. And he talks about only one of the two. But language is important. Notice he never says, there was only one angel at the tomb. That word's not in there. There's no only, there's no just, there's no merely. But John takes the time to set the scene and explain what's going on around. So let's think about this in a real-life example for a second. If you were to ask me how my weekend was, I'd be like, good, yeah, I got to see some family, and it, it was nice, and I worked on my teaching a little bit, and then I just kind of relaxed, right? But if you ask Kara, I think there would be a lot more detail. It would be like, well, I went to work, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and I'm joking, Kara's not like that at all. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, that doesn't make my story any less true, right? Just because hers may have more detail, doesn't make mine any less true. 
because more or less information is not a contradiction. So let's move on to number three. Who carried the cross? Simon or Jesus? Let's read for Simon. Cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Right? So I think for this, our reasonable solution comes in the context of some Roman law, which is super fun. Um, and there are two in particular that we're going to talk about this morning. The first, Roman law included a law to force a citizen, specifically a Jew, to carry a burden for up to a mile, right? And that's why Jesus says, like, if you're asked to carry a burden for one mile, carry it for two, right? That's where that comes from. But the other law is that those who were being crucified were required to carry their own cross. But we also know in this that Jesus was beaten so severely that he actually died faster than was expected. And so what's, what's our reasonable solution in all that? I would say they both did. They both carried the cross. Jesus could have started out carrying the cross, but was beaten so severely, had so many wounds, that he was struggling to carry it, and they compelled Simon to carry the burden along the way. And actually, we see in Matthew, if you read the verses um, beforehand, and back up to 31, it actually says that Jesus was carrying the cross. Um, in 31, it says, when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So before it ever talks about Simon, in Matthew, it says that they were already on the journey, and we know from that Roman law that we talked about who would have been carrying that cross to begin with. And so this goes back to our other point, right? One just has less information. And more or less, information is not a contradiction. So number four, what was written above Jesus on the cross. Was it, like Matthew 27, 37 says? Okay. And they put up over his head the accusation, accusation written against him. This is the king of the Jews. Or like Mark says, and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Or Luke and an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Or is it in John? Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so maybe this one's already kind of in your head as we began to break these down. But undoubtedly, we know that it says the king of the Jews. Right? Like, that's in every single one of those. So we know it says that. But, you know, let's, let's put all those together. Let's cram them all into one sentence, and let's see if it makes sense. So the full saying would be, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Is there any doubt they were reading the same sign? I don't think so. But I also don't think that even if they misquoted it or whatever, that's not necessarily a contradiction. Like, if it said... 
this is Jesus of Bikini Bottom, the king of the fish. That's probably a contradiction compared to the rest of them, right? <laughs> but all of those were pretty darn close to what the full saying could have been. And I would think that that is what's on the cross. Because what we see a lot of times in the crucifixion of people, if you go look it up, it tells you who is being crucified. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And what they're being crucified for, the king of the Jews. And so, what's our reasonable solution? It was summarized, and summarization is not a contradiction. If you're recalling something at a later date, and specifically, this is years later, that most of these got written down, are you going to remember it word for word? Probably not, but the point is there, right? It was Jesus, the king of the Jews. Summarization is not a contradiction. Number five, where were the woman at the crucifixion? Let's read in Matthew. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Or in Mark, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less and of Joseph, and Salome. In Luke, but all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Or was it up close like John tells us? Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So actually, if you take a bit and you go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, reading them in context and reading it carefully, you'll find that they are speaking about the specific moment of Jesus' death when he actually died on the cross, that moment. Kind of like, like a moment frozen in time. And I think about it this way. Imagine, well, I can't because I was only two years old. But 9-11, where were you during 9-11? Everybody who's old enough to remember that probably remembers like, oh man, I was at work when I heard the news. Right, that's a moment frozen in time for you. And I think it's the same here. It was an account of where everyone was when Jesus died. But if my opinion's not enough, I got proof. Ready? So we see a couple things in Matthew uh, in 27, 45 through 50. Um, first, we see that it's a three-hour process for Jesus to die, but we also see that these verses precede the verses we just read a few minutes ago. And so Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, yamas bakthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so there's your proof. Jesus was dead in verse 50. And the woman were watching from afar directly after in 55. And so, 
It's a three hour process, right? So what's our reasonable solution? They moved. It's three hours. Have you ever stood in the same place for three hours? No, I haven't. I can't even stand in the same place for five minutes. Like, no. <laughs> but they moved during the three hours, and these writers were writing about different times during the crucifixion. Like, I think about it this way. It wasn't like Jesus got nailed to the cross, and everybody took a nail and went <clears throat> straight to their feet. Can't move. Sorry. It's over. Or, and... This is a little bit, I know we joked a lot, but this is a little bit more of a real and, and kind of heart-wrenching um, way to think about this. But I think the truth is, it puts a more human perspective um, on how massive this moment of Jesus dying is in our history and our faith. I think about like when a family knows somebody isn't going to make it. And they're in the hospital, so they call all their relatives to come and say their goodbyes. And a lot of times those hospital rooms aren't big enough for everyone. And so you go in, you say your goodbyes, and you kind of recede to the waiting room, and you hang out with your family and your friends. But I think that is a good representation of what may have happened in this scenario, right? Mary went up and spoke with Jesus, said her goodbyes, and then receded to watch from afar with family and with friends. So again, our reasonable solution they moved during three hours. And finally, our last one, number six. Who went to the tomb? Let's read first in Matthew, where it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So we see two people. In Mark, we see three people. We see Mary Magdalene. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So that's three people. Or is it five, like Luke tells us, and the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And still in Luke, we're on five people still. There's a lot of Luke verses. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. Or was it Mary Magdalene by herself? Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So what's our reasonable solution? Because all of those mention different people. Well, not different. The same people, but more or less of them. Uh, and so I would argue that our reasonable solution is that all of the above is true. The goal of the websites that I found these from is to try and convince you, me, of things that aren't necessarily there. Because even though in John it only, it only mentions uh, Mary Magdalene, it's the same idea that we had earlier where it doesn't say only Mary Magdalene. Right? And so truly, I think it's just the different perspectives of each gospel. There's a different person writing each thing. And it would make sense that you hear different details in different accounts. Uh, in fact, 
um, as I was doing research on this, most investigative journalists, lawyers, judges, all of those things, would argue that if a story was the same for same, or same word for word account over and over and over again, they actually wouldn't believe it, they would think they colluded. Not that the details were different, but if it was word for word and everything was the exact same the whole time, they would think they colluded. And so I think about if that was the Gospels, while it would save us some time because there's three less Gospels to read because you get everything you need in one, like, it would be harder, I think, for me to believe if they were all the exact same. But back to the woman on this trip. Mary Magdalene was listed first in almost every single one of those verses. So obviously, it seems like she's the most memorable person on this trip. So then altogether, we probably have, though, at least five women together as a possibility. Because again, even in, in all of the verses, it never says only, merely, just, solo, by themselves, any of that stuff, right? To imply that the non-mentioned members aren't actually there. Or there's another possibility in this one as well. Some people have implied that there were multiple trips to the tomb. And so go back in time with me and imagine that you're there and, and Jesus had just died and you're grieving and all of these things are happening and all hope is lost. And then you get a text that's like, yo, Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. I got to go see that, right? And so I'm going to go and then I see it. And today we would like take a picture and post it on Facebook, but like they couldn't do that. And so they have to invite all of the people that they want to see this thing. Hey, come see the tomb. Come see it. It's empty. It's empty. Come see it. Right? I would go. I think absolutely there could have been multiple, multiple, multiple trips to the tomb. Because honestly, I think at that point it would be a tourist site. Right? I would want to see it. But the point is that omission, it came up on the screen a little bit ago, omission is not contradiction. Just because something isn't there doesn't mean it's not true. And so the common theme in all six of those is that if you just put in a little bit of extra effort, if you take the time to read in context and read to learn the truth, instead of just taking some things for face value and just believing whatever we see, we have to dive deeper into these things, or we will never be able to fully understand what God is trying to teach us through the Bible. Matt talked a couple weeks ago about echo chambers and, and the idea of surrounding yourself with people that you want to hear things from and that are like-minded. But I, I argue consider, not about Matt, but about these websites, consider the source, right? An atheist website is not ever going to give you any evidence for God. Right? And likewise, I'll, I'll be truthful, the same here. I'm not going to just dump a bunch of like, extra problems to make it harder for you to follow God. Right? I believe God is real, and I'm, I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for us to follow Jesus together. And so consider the source, uh, because God isn't meant to just be consumed, but pursued. It's not enough to just go and read everything and be like, okay, that's all I need. That's all I got. We have to live it out. We have to pursue the truth ourselves. 
And so that's the third part of this teaching today that we're going to get into as, as we wind down. And I want to bring back up this dress that we were talking about earlier. That's an actual picture of the dress that we talked about. And at, what, at one point, this was a super controversial idea of what color this was. But there it's pretty clear. There it's pretty clear. And what people have actually said as we've looked back at this cultural phenomenon that was this dress, which should not have been, but it was. All it was was the dress was actually taken in a room with some weird lighting. And if people's phone brightness was really bright, they saw white and gold. And if it was really dark, they saw black and blue. And so what was once super controversial in the wrong context is now extremely, extremely clear in the right one. And I get it. This is just a dress. Like, how serious could it really be? It's just a dress. But if we as a nation would have actually just taken a little bit of extra time and be like, hey, that dress that keeps showing up, what color is it actually? You probably would have got that picture because it was like a week after that they were selling those things like crazy because everybody wanted one. You would have seen that picture. You would have seen that it's black and blue. But again, it's just a dress. It's just a dress. So let me tell you another story about a guy named Lee Strobel. And that's his picture up on the screen, um, who I encourage you to look up because uh, this dude's story is incredible. Um, and he's got a movie, and he speaks regularly at various places and stuff. But uh, So this is a guy who comes from an atheist background. And his wife, um, all of a sudden, was like going to church, and she was becoming a Christian. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to disprove the Bible. I'm going to prove to her that it's not real so that I can have my lifestyle back because she's making me do things that are, at that time to him, he mentions how like he didn't like the lifestyle that, that they were going to be living if she was going to be a Christian. And so um, he was going to prove the Bible wrong. And so uh, his story is actually, uh, he, he researched for two years almost um, all the things that he could to, to disprove the Bible. And when he tells his story, he summarizes his whole, his whole story in this one quote. I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to believe in God. And this, again, is after two years of pursuing historical evidence and translations and all of these things. Like, he spent so much time, and at one point, he just, with documents all on the floor scattered around him, he was like, everything here points to Jesus. Like, it would take more faith to maintain atheism than it would to just believe the evidence that's right here. Lee encountered the truth, but only because he pursued it. And so I think for us, we have to be doing that same thing. We have to pursue the truth. Because if you're just believing things that you want to hear, you're never going to hear the truth fully. And it's the same for God. If you're not consistently pursuing God with everything in you, then in my experience, you're probably not going to hear from him. And so for us, we need to be doing that. We need to pursue God, pursue the truth with everything in us because I'm fully confident that if we do that, then we'll wind up just like Lee. Well, we pray that you enjoyed the message today. We pray that it was challenging and that the Spirit has stirred something new in you today. Have a blessed week.